Hey there, and welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. I am so glad you are tuning in today. Today's episode is for the cycle breakers. And sometimes when we are doing the work of getting to know our triggers and changing dynamics in our home and breaking cycles in our relationships, in our families, and within ourselves, Sometimes we might find ourselves wondering, where did this where did this even start? Why is this such a triggering situation for me? Why is this behavior seem so repetitive? Why are these dynamics so familiar? Have you heard of the term intergenerational trauma before? In this episode, I invited Dr. Marielle Bouquet onto the podcast to talk to us about breaking cycles and cycles that started before we were even born. In this episode, together we will be exploring answers to the questions such as, what are some of the signs that you may be dealing with generational trauma? What is the intergenerational nervous system and what does resilience from an intergenerational perspective look like? And how do we heal from intergenerational trauma? And how do we begin to break cycles that started way before we were even here so that we can support and protect the next generation and ourselves? All right. I am so glad you are tuning in today. Let's dive in. I'm so excited for you to meet Dr. Marielle Bouquet. You're listening to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy Freitas. I'm a mom to three and licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm really glad that you took the time to hold space for you by tuning in to today's episode. My hope with this podcast is to share conversations with experts from around the world and parents who've been through it so that maybe you feel a little less alone in your experiences and the messy side of being a parent and being a human and so that you can walk away with supportive steps for what to do next. Listening to this episode is not a substitute for seeking support from a professional in your area. I believe that holding space and offering presence to both ourselves and others is truly one of the most meaningful ways that we can express care. And you are so deserving of that care. All right, are you ready? Let's dive in. Dr. Marielle Bouquet, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am really excited to dive into our conversation with you today. Before we do, would love to give you a chance to introduce yourself to the listener, who you are, what lights you up, and what are you passionate about? And talk to us for sure, please, about your new book. Mm, Yes. Thank you so much for having me, by the way. And um, I'm delighted to talk about my book, which is a part of, you know, all the things that I do. So I'm a, a trained psychologist and a licensed psychologist. And my work specifically focuses on trauma healing and even more specifically on intergenerational trauma, which is why I have written this book called Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma that offers a comprehensive orientation around how to do this work and how to really heal trauma at the root and and really dig into the layers of what, you know, keeps our families like in states of pain and mm. um, emotional discord and, and disconnection and, and really get back into 
a place where we can start building legacies that we're proud of mm-hmm. and that are filled with abundance. So that's a, it's a little snippet of <laughs> who I am and what I do. <laughs> You are, you're like really speaking to my heart. Like there were just several words in there, legacy, multi-generational trauma, like, oof. Okay. I am (laughs) so excited for myself and for the listener to be a witness to this. All right. So Mm -hmm. let's, let's dive in. You say in your book that we really need to be looking at childhood trauma and some of those adverse childhood experiences through a multi-generational lens. And, and before I before we get into hearing you talk about what you mean by that, I just want to set the stage for the listener that when we when we use this word trauma, right? Like there's there's capital T traumas and there's lowercase T traumas. And I think that Oftentimes when folks think about childhood trauma, they'll look back on their childhood and they might, they might say, you know, I, I, I don't think I had trauma, right? But then I think that there's, there's always, there's always, I think, reason to go and, and to take a look back at some of our experiences and, and to maybe be curious about some of the times in which maybe our needs weren't being met or we felt pressure or we felt like what our body was telling us felt different than what others around us were telling us we should need or should be doing or should be feeling or not feeling. And and those experiences matter too. So no matter what your experiences were, I, I, I'm really glad that you're here and you're listening. And so um, Dr. Bouquet, if you could take us through what you mean by the importance of taking a look at our childhood experiences. Yeah. So, you know, actually one of the most important pieces of evidence, inquiry, you know, uh, curiosity that we have around adverse childhood experiences or childhood trauma comes from this questionnaire called the ACEs questionnaire, which many people are probably at this point fairly familiar with what that is. And, um, you know, it's a questionnaire that for those of us who aren't lists out 10 different areas, core areas specifically that most people tend to experience in their childhood that could have possibly been felt as adversity of some Mm -hmm. sort Mm -hmm. and could have had an impact on their adult lives, whether it's a mental health-based impact or a physical health-based impact or just a social impact, like maybe it impacts their work and, and other things. Now, the original ACEs did have some shortcomings, and it has been, you know, widely uh, critiqued for this reason because it only had these 10 categories, and Mm -hmm. some of us, you know, we have experiences that don't fall within those. In addition to that, it wasn't necessarily considering a really important element of um, what can also perpetuate trauma in our lives, like maybe the societies that we're mm. a part of, right? And and some of the things that happen inside of our communities, in our countries, yeah. our societies at large. And then in addition to that, what I found was an added missing link. And especially when I was working with clients and I, we were trying to dig through the layers of their pain was like, um, well, what happened before you, right? Like, wow. why was it that this parent was having, you know, these these uh, bouts of rage? Like, what what happened to them? I, I was really curious. 
And then when I started digging through that question from a research standpoint, I started finding research studies that were also helping us understand that when a parent themselves has experienced average childhood experiences, especially if those experiences were like abuse or, you know, maybe like a, some sort of deficit, like economic poverty, like things like that, yeah. that there is a very high chance that the next generation will also experience that. And mm. even that the parent, let's say in the case of abuse, could be the perpetuator. Like they may perpetuate trauma onto their children because it's what they saw growing up or what was normalized for them in their home. And so when I started looking at those pieces, I'm like, okay, so if we know that a big, a big like marker of average childhood experiences is how well or how challenged a parent might be in that moment emotionally that they're um, raising their child, why are we not adding that to the equation? So I added it and I was like, you know, well, in my work, I don't just explore what happened to you, meaning anything that happened in your childhood or adult life that could have been felt as traumatic, but also what happened before you, what happened to your parents. Maybe they were, you know, a child that was also like, emotionally neglected just the mm. same as you were right mm -hmm. and maybe there was an emotional abuse component in in their lives that you know kept going down the family line and then in addition to that because we don't all you know live in silos and apart from one another we live in communities and societies that are integrated and feed off of each other and we live in worlds where you know Roe versus Wade, you know, is like yeah. sitting, you know, it, impacting us in so many ways. Yeah. Um, we live in a society where racial oppression is very prominent and present, where, you know, individuals that um, identify or love differently yeah. have so many different barriers against them. And that that is also something that can cause chronic stress and chronic trauma So I added that added question of what happened around you. So the question for me became not just what happened to you, which the original ACEs tends to answer to an extent, mm. but what happened to you through the generations? What happened before you? What happened around you? What happened in your generation? Let's get the full picture. Mm. I know that for myself, for the clients I've worked with, when when we begin to, it's almost like, You know the Google Earth app where you're able to like zoom in, zoom out, so you can kind of really zoom in very closely to to look at, you know, one home, for instance, or one part of town, and then all of a sudden you can you can push a button to zoom out and to begin to look at the context around. When we're able to do that for ourselves and begin to look at the systems around us, our family system, the community the societal systems around us, we get such a clear picture of, 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 of this insight. And I, I just, I truly believe that <clears throat> insight, you know, curiosity and context, which leads to insight is such a bridge to compassion, compassion for ourselves and our own experiences, our own behaviors, our own triggers, And can oftentimes be a bridge to compassion for those around us as well. And mm -hmm. um, and so I, 
let's explore this a little bit further. I'd love to understand from from you and your research and the work that you've done, what are some of the signs that someone may be dealing with generational trauma and, and what are some of the consequences, right, of of being raised by parents who didn't break some of the cycles that now the listener is is taking on, right? Mm-hmm. Taking on that role of being a cycle breaker. Yeah, I'll start with the consequences first because yeah. I think that that's a little bit of an easier one for me because the the biggest consequence of unaddressed trauma is the risk of passing it down. It's inheritance. Mm. It's the fact that our kids, their children, their children's children, that all of these generations start believing that a specific set of trauma responses are actually normal or just the way that things are, Mm. and that they leave them uncontested, unaddressed, and open to transmission. Mm. And so that's really the biggest consequence, right? You know, um, apart from like, you know, we can be wounded, we can wound others, and there's a lot of nuance there. However, you know, it's that, and I know that for many parents, this is something that is important and a value as far as like understanding this piece is that they could very well create or continue the legacy of pain in their family. Mm. What I have seen in cycle breakers is that almost exclusively no one wants that. (laughs) They want to be able to break cycles. They want to be able to say, this is something that has run through my family line, but it ends with me. I no longer want this to be the case. This feels painful. It doesn't need to be this way. Things Mm. can be different. There's a lot of like narratives that cycle breakers take on intuitively. Like they just know that things must be different and they start kind of organizing their thinking around that. And eventually for many of us, that kind of leads into different kinds of behaviors that more so align with the values we want to hold than with the behaviors that we saw growing up. Now, when it comes to like actually noticing, Hmm. it's a little bit more nuanced because I think that this is why you know, really why I wrote the book and like, you know, offered like a, a, a number of prompts in there for people to kind of like do a little bit of the digging work for themselves, because it can be so incredibly individual. While of course, there's, you know, some elements of intergenerational trauma that are very much like the prototype, right? There's a lot of people that come from families where, you know, people pleasing is a general <laughs> way of being. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it just, it's become like the way to be. Sometimes we actually even couple it under like, or, or make it look like the culture, like Mm. whatever culture we come from. And we're like, this is how things are. And this is how you must behave towards an elder Mm -hmm. and like, you know, things like that. Whereas that elder may kind of be boundary crossing, right? Mm. On a perpetual basis and actually be making you do things that, are of service to them, but disservice to you. Mm. And so it's really critical to be able to have an understanding and a mapping back to what are the patterns that are reflected down my family line and what have I ingested? And some of that digging work takes time. You know, it takes, it takes a little bit of excavation, a little bit of curiosity. Um, but for the most part, it tends to be that people tend to see that patterns exist in their lives and in their families. Mm. Um, And that more often than not, 
that they have been feeling a sense of discomfort for a very long time. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, I'm reflecting on, um, as I hope the listener is for themselves, thinking about some of my own experiences, some of the signs of generational trauma and some of the consequences in within myself and within my own relationships. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed when I became a parent is I would find just 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 one example. There's many, but I would find when I was around family, when I had my my first, when she was a toddler, I'd find myself feeling very tense around how her behavior was reflecting on me and my parenting and her emotional outbursts or her right her pushing on boundaries and. I found myself really um, feeling t- like in my body really tense, right? So there is a sign there. And some of the, one of the consequences of that was micro- micromanaging a lot of her behavior, especially around other family members, um, showing up as a parent out of alignment with the way in which I wanted to show up as a parent with her. And as I began to do my own work and began to begin to name and understand certain parts of myself, the people-pleasing part, the perfectionist part, the kind of good girl identity, and then began to zoom out, right, to look at, you know, where, how, where did this come from and, and why is this showing up in the context of my family system and, and why are these moments of her expressing really, you know, normal human emotions um, and developmentally appropriate behaviors. Why is that so challenging? And and beginning to understand some of the context around, you know, my my father's upbringing, my father's poverty, and the, you know, the way in which he found safety, which was education and like perfection around education, so achievement. Um, and that was there was a lot of control around that, right, and a lot of pressure um, and intensity that I felt around that. And for my mom, as a Hispanic woman, the way in which she had to show up in different spaces to become what you know she's a, she's now a judge to get to that place, the kind of ways in which she had to shape shift and control herself and be perfect and please those around us and. And how I I didn't want I didn't want to continue that cycle mm-hmm. for my children, and I wanted to with certain privileges that I that I carried. I wanted to be able to to use that to break some of the cycles, so that I could so that my, I could also for my parents' sake, right, like being able to look both up to their generation and down to the generation below me. Um, but it it was really hard. And it's a continuous yeah. <laughs> work every single day, right? When my daughter brings home grades that are below an A and I find my whole body like uh, responding in a certain way or when my son has these, you know, big, big, big meltdowns or pushes on boundaries. Oh. So 
as I, it's funny, as I'm talking about it even right now, I feel my nervous system starting to activate. And I know that you talk about this idea of the intergenerational nervous system. Mm-hmm. I'm so fascinated by this, how our body responds. Our body responds to things that maybe we don't even we don't even fully recall, right? Like mm-hmm. can you can you talk to us a little bit about about that, about what's going on? in our nervous system from an intergenerational perspective. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And I hope, um, I hope maybe as I speak, uh, it offers you an opportunity for settling. I know, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how that can feel. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I always think, um, or, or at least I go back to even for myself, the understanding that, you know, wherever there's a nervous system flare up, that's where the healing is situated. And it's, mm. a, you know, in part, it's a message. Um, now, the intergenerational nervous system is a little bit on the complex end because it actually uh, is part biology, part psychology. Very yeah. apropos to the generational healing work, which is very much multi-layered. And the reason being is because we actually, many people don't know, some do, that we actually develop as this tiny microscopic precursor sex cell inside of our grandmother's wombs. Not our parents, but our mm. grandmothers. Which means that Oof. we were once actually inside of our mother's wombs as let's say an egg or our father's womb as a sperm precursor sex cell and it this was when they were actually still a five-month embryo inside of our grandmother's wombs so on both sides we were coexisting in an intergenerational body three bodies in one and it's a beautiful moment where there's so many shared experiences, shared sounds, shared sensations, shared, you know, flavors. Like there's so many things that feel uh, like they're tying the three bodies together, but there's also shared stressors. And mm-hmm. when our grandmothers were experiencing stress in their lives, they were filtering stress hormones into their bloodstream as a result, which is yeah. a natural, you know, progression of stress when it's, you know, it's kind of captures itself in the body, which filtered onto their five month embryo, our parents, which then filtered onto us. And wow. so when we are able to look at the basic, you know, undercurrent, biological undercurrent of our nervous system and the ways in which in those very tender moments, we were already getting cues from our grandmother's social environment that said, the world is safe, the world is unsafe. Mm. And so we were already getting a lot of those like pre-programming, like kind of like mechanisms being a part of our, you know, general genetic makeup. Then two generations later, when we're finally born, um, we now, you know, let's say that we're born into a home Let's say that grandma's still in the picture. She's still in the home. She has her own mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so does mom. And, and now we have a multi-generational home in which it's you as a child, your mother, and your grandparent. 
And we'll use the, the great example, right? Like, you know, let's say, or let's say that you bring home, you know, a story about how you shoved a kid and you mm. got in trouble. Mm-hmm. And as a result, your mother, whose nervous system has also felt very overactive and mm-hmm. you know, hyper-stressed and has been stuck in a trauma place, meaning it's in survival yeah. mode, her direct course of action is to fight fight, flight, freeze, or fawn are our nervous system responses. Mm-hmm. For her, she needs to fight you. Why did you do that? You know better. I've taught you better. And so she berates you. Mm-hmm. And that's the way that she is able to basically deal with the stressor of the fact that her kid acted out of character. Right. Your grandmother comes out of her room and she has taken on a fawn response, which is a people-pleasing response. Mm. So she says, please don't yell at that child. I beg of you, just please stop. So she's in fawn mode. You are mortified, feeling ashamed, and you run to your room. You're in flea mode. Yeah. So we have fight, flight, and fawn all together in one home, collectively feeding off of each other. Yeah. With nervous systems that were already, in essence, at least at the very basic, basic, basic level, feeding off of each other in a biological way, then everybody's born and now you have them feeding off of each other socially, interpersonally. Yes. And that's what the the intergenerational nervous system is. It's a combination of those biological elements together with the psychological. Oh my gosh. This is fascinating. Uh, Okay. Resilience. Intergenerational resilience. I know, I know from the work that I've done and what I've been able to witness that that is possible. Change, resilience. Talk to us a little bit about that. I agree. And I appreciate the pivot from a very heavy (laughs) nervous system topic into the other side, which is so critical and important. And we oftentimes leave out of the equation that resilience, intergenerational resilience in particular, also has both a biological and a psychological Mm. component, Mm -hmm. which is beautiful. And and it's a part of also what helps to keep us upright, what helps to keep us in a, you know, in in the process of healing, even when things feel a little bit like gunky. And the thing about um, intergenerational resilience is that it is not just the resilience that we have and, and are able to amass in our own minds and bodies. It is also the resilience, the strength, the wisdom, the mm. care, the loving words, the affirmations, the you know the 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 messages that we received growing up to to help us kind of overcome circumstances. It's all of that that was also passed down. It's the wisdom. It's the you know it's, mm. it's all those beautiful gifts that are generational gifts that flowed through our family line and finally made its way to us. Now, from a biological perspective, although it's in more of its infancy stages, particularly so when compared to a generational trauma, our understandings of generational resilience in, in how it's held in the body is that we have somewhat of an understanding and someone can even say, actually, this is fairly old because we can even go into Darwinian times and Mm -hmm. like maybe we can get, we can geek out in that direction (laughs) a little bit. Right. But you know, um, it's important to understand that some of us have ways of actually internalizing 
the the genetic messages of our parents, our grandparents, our ancestors, because that actually offers us an opportunity to survive what they mm. went through. Yeah. And so biologically, I'll give you an example that I feature in my book, which was the most mind-blowing example that I came across in my practice. It was of a, a young gentleman named Leon who... Um, his grandfather had actually been attacked it, walking in the park by an assailant. Um, he got beat up pretty badly, and the assailant was drinking coffee right before the attack. And so beyond that time, his grandfather, he would always find the smell of coffee to mm. feel repulsive. Yeah. Leon's mother, who was born well after the attack, nowhere near, like just years Thanks. later, now she actually had a certain response to coffee. Mm-hmm. And Leon, now two generations removed, also felt like coffee made him nauseous. So now we have three generations that have internalized this, wow. this core like memory imprint of coffee and danger, coffee and queasiness. Yeah. And in part, you know, yeah, we can see it as like, who wants to inherit queasiness when it comes to coffee, right? But in part, it's like, you know, your grandfather kind of left you that so that mm-hmm. you can almost kind of be on alert whenever there's coffee yeah. around, there's a possibility that your life may be in danger. Mm. But yeah, you know, like that was something that was like so mind blowing. And it, it almost like, you know, from a scientific place, it felt like, of course, of course, you know, the body is so remarkable that it says, you know what, my dear descendant, I went through something and I don't want you to go through it. So let me warn you, you know, in a very kind of implicit way, let me warn you about what can happen to you Mm. when there's this trigger point of a smell of coffee. And, you know, it's, when we talk about generational resilience, I think we also have to kind of incorporate that element into our understanding of it. Yes. I think that context is so helpful, again, for building insight and, again, for building compassion. You know, I think um, a lot of folks will share, and I I myself can experience this, that when when the sun begins to set, I notice my nervous system get a little activated, a little bit more anxious, especially when I'm postpartum. And, you know, it makes sense when I just look at the present – present experience, right, of, okay, gosh, I don't know if the baby's going to sleep tonight. I don't know how much rest I'm going to get, right? Like I – it's maybe for some, they might, you know, feel really alone at night. And and then also, though, if I begin to look at some of the the generational components of this from like more of an evolutionary perspective, as you named here, you know, my ancestors and the ones who survived, right, like – we're probably more on high alert when the sun set for their own safety based on their situation. Mm-hmm. And when I begin to name it like that, and gosh, even I even think about, I actually don't, I don't really know the science around this, but it's just like, it makes, it kind of makes logical sense to me. And it's, it's, it has helped me around right before I start my period that I feel that fight and like that fight and that 
fight, flight, freeze, fawn response, just so much more activated. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking once, you know, gosh, like why? Why? Like I know there's a hormone component and I know, but like why why this response? And, and then I was like, you know, I wonder if my ancestors that, you know, lived amongst predators and didn't have, you know, ways in which to capture the blood. And there was, you know, when they when they bled, they became at risk for smelling like a wounded animal. <laughs> like, you know, and mm-hmm. and and it's the minute I began to think about these things in these ways, I'm like, there's a way that I'm able to turn into my body and like hold myself in a way that's like, this makes sense. It makes sense when you understand that context and you are safe right now, right? Like mm-hmm. this is this is something that your family system has passed down as a way to keep you safe. And here I am now to look around and to tell you that you are safe. Or now how might I respond to this um, in a way that helps complete the stress cycle, right? Like what is my body needing right now to, to reclaim that sense of safety? Because it is safe right right now when I look around and I'm able to um, you know, settle into that. So I think that this is it's it's brilliant to, to to begin to kind of contextualize these things in these ways. Now, I want to I'd love to kind of wrap up here in in talking about love because I think that oftentimes something that can feel like it gets in the way of us breaking a cycle is there's this fear of if I be, if I become a cycle breaker and I begin to set boundaries. I begin to um, let go of certain legacies that are no lo- that do not serve us, and I re- I begin to build new legacies. That there can be this block of is this me abandoning or or turning away from loving certain people in my life, like my grandmother or my father, or right and. I would love to hear from you. How do we how do we reframe this to to begin to see that we can we can we can experience love in a way that still leads us towards healing? Hmm. You know, uh, there's this concept that I have in my work and in the book called intergenerational loyalty, which is our mm. loyalty to the very pain that has existed mm. in our family line. And the ways in which we, in essence, become cycle keepers instead of cycle breakers because we don't want to disrupt the sense of loyalty that's there and cause emotional injury to the people that we love as a result because they may feel abandoned or like we think we're better than them because we're healing and all this stuff. And, you know, as I mentioned in in the work, I believe that the biggest form of love is when we actually can disrupt that sense of loyalty and we can step into the healing Mm. that's in front of us, not just for us, but for them too. Even if they're not willing to receive it from us, that we're healing because we knew that they couldn't, because we understood that maybe they had an emotional hindrance, that they just weren't willing, you know, to do Mm. that. But that we can heal the parts of ourselves that internalize their hurt and we can heal the parts of ourselves that internalized our own hurt. We can do the work. We can just like really centralize Mm -hmm. our efforts 
and that that is the true loyalty to family. It's the true loyalty to their care, showing up differently, showing up with more settled nervous systems that foster deeper connection and allow us to feel more present and mindful in their presence and not feeling like we need to run away or fight them like they're our enemies. Some Mm. of them, but you know, some of them just reflect triggers and they may not necessarily be our enemies, but we just, our nervous systems may be in a hyper alerted state. And so it's going to be really critical for us to just reframe that concept of being in that state of loyalty and believing that we're abandoning our family and shifting into the perception that the true loyalty lies in the healing. Mm. And that's where, that's where the love is. Mm-hmm. That's where love is. Oh, thank you so much, um, Dr. Bouquet, for taking the time to share so much with us today and um, and, and, and leaving, leaving me and leaving us wanting more. So please, please share with, with us and with the listener where they can continue to learn from you and find your book. Yes. So thank you. Um, I, I appreciate this conversation so much. And uh, my work can be found at drmariellebouquet.com. And I'm mostly on LinkedIn these days. Um, and my book is also on my website, but it's also wherever books are sold. Thank you. And I will be sure to include links to that in the show notes. The listener can go straight there to to find you. Again, thank you so much for all the work that you do and the ways in which you support all of us in being cycle breakers. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might want to hit that subscribe button to be the first to know when future episodes air. And go and explore some of those past episodes. Maybe there's a topic in there that you've really been wanting to learn more about. You can learn more about my private practice as well as my parenting courses and workshops at the link in the show notes. You held space for yourself today. You carved out the time and you tuned into this episode. I hope you take a moment to honor how meaningful that is. Yes, to me for sure, but also... For you. Thank you for tuning in and I'll catch you next time.